peaking is really just bringing your form up to a crescendo so you're in your best physical and mental shape for your events in your plan. Tapering in and around that is, I think they sort of go hand in hand because, you know, you, you don't want to be fatigued going into your racing. You want to be fresh. You want to be sharp. That's the whole point. I would always bring the volume back about 30 to 40%. And with my intensity, I would always cap my intensity and my taper at my target race intensity level. Hi, I'm Dirk Friel, co-founder of Training Peaks, and you're listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. I'll be sitting down with expert endurance coaches and amazing athletes, each with special stories to tell. At its heart, Training Peaks is about helping you create the best journey possible towards your endurance goals. We hope these stories inspire you to get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge. Better known in the triathlon world as Crowey, Craig Alexander is a true legend of the sport. He is a three-time Ironman champion and two-time 70.3 world champion, having won both in the same year in 2011. He has held the Ironman Hawaii course record, and he was recently inducted into the Ironman Australia Hall of Fame. In 2014, Craig started his coaching company, Sanzigo, which offers training camps, clubs, training plans, and of course, personal coaching. I hope you enjoy this special guest and can learn a thing or two that can help you with your next big event. Craig Crowey Alexander, I, I have amazing memories of, of having you in Boulder. That was such an exciting time back when you were really killing it on the circuit. And I, I get goosebumps thinking about like, did some motor pacing sessions with you. And I was the driver, of course, and you're behind me on the moto and did some cool sessions in the garage. But uh, yeah, those were really, really fond times uh, for me to think back on. So thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. They were fun times. I, um, I miss our Boulder summers and uh, it was a big part of our life. You know, we relocated over there and um, you know, when I think back, I, I, of course, I miss the racing and, and the training and the process of getting fit, but I just miss, I guess, that stage of life, being in Boulder, all the friends we had over there, and it's just such a great place. Yeah, awesome. And one, I had you sign this for me, and uh, for those folks not watching on YouTube, it's a big poster that uh, Crowe signed for me, but I had this poster downsized to small little cards. And I think I came over to your house and had you sign like a thousand of them one evening. So <laughs> I, thank you so much for getting, uh, your, you know, the cramps in your hand for signing all our cards for us. That, that was uh, really cool pleasure. to hand out. It was yeah, like training, um, for, forearm training. <laughs> Definite. So tell us what you're doing these days. You know, obviously traveling to races and stuff, but uh, tell us about uh, the coaching biz and your club and what's all going on around that. Yeah, well, right up until the pandemic hit, I was still racing um, on the pro circuit. So 2019, um, I still did five pro races and um, had a couple of good results, a couple of good wins that year, won an Aussie title. And I mean, I guess the the main stage of my racing career was behind me, but I was still training because it was part of my daily routine and that's what I love to do. And with such a big base, I was able to get in really good race 
fitness um, pretty easily. So yeah, I was still jumping into races right up until um, the pandemic hit. And, and even in 2020, I had some races scheduled in Europe and in, in the US. But of course, we know what happened um, in 2020 and 2021. So um, when we went into that lockdown, I still, I still trained for, more for my mental health than anything else and because I still love to train. Um, but I think somewhere in, in amongst all of that, I knew my sort of racing days would be behind me. And um, I actually turned into more of a, a house husband. My wife's an emergency nurse, so she, she went from 15 hours a week, a part-time workload to, yeah, she went from naught to 100 very quickly. She was working 50 and 60-hour weeks. Wow. I was at home with the kids, homeschooling. And, and to be honest, loving that, it, it was um, something I didn't really get to do a lot of when I was training full-time. So right. really embraced uh, being at home a lot and, and just, you know, I was just trying to be more a glass half full mentality and just embrace whatever was thrown our way. So um, the racing sort of went by the by then and um, as did a lot of the coaching business. Of course, Sensego was set up in 2014. But um, with a lot of uncertainty around racing and um, events being postponed and cancelled, that sort of went on the, the back burner as well. Um, although I, I think I used the time wisely to restructure the business and um, sort of shore up what we really wanted to do moving forward. So then when the world opened up, we were ready to, I guess, relaunch in a way that um, I would really be happy with and brought in a couple of new partners. So I think the thing that really suffered during the pandemic was we'd been running camps globally. We'd had camps mm. in Boulder, in Kona, in Mallorca, um, quite a few in Canada, South America. And of course, when the world shut down, that, that stopped almost immediately. And that was really my main part of the business. I would attend all of the, the training camps. Um, so we went to more of online activations like a lot of people did. Um, and since the world's opened up, yeah, we've sort of relaunched and looking forward to putting on some more camps. I think our first one we have is scheduled for next February in Tucson. So oh. looking forward to, to doing – I really love those camps and experiences. I think um, when you get together with athletes for three or four days, you can really accomplish a lot in terms of not only training together but sharing a lot of knowledge in a short period of time around you know training principles that I've used. Um, I always bring in a few experts and people I've worked with. So we talk about nutrition, strength and conditioning, just different um, principles around training so that hopefully people leave those camps feeling empowered to make really smart decisions about their own training, scheduling races, body maintenance, managing a season, all those sorts of things. So looking forward to getting back to that. And, um, you know, I'm still lucky I have nine companies who I'm a uh, brand ambassador for. So doing a lot of work and travel around that too. A lot of my travel these days going to events is, is promotional work. So that's what takes up my time. And, you know, I think being at home, I've started, a, you know, diving into a few different projects. I With one of the other dads at my youngest daughter's school, we started up a little run club. So we, oh, wow. one morning a week, yeah, we do, nice. we just get the kids along. We It's more about playing games and having fun. Yeah. And, and then we do a few little running drills just to sort of teach the kids yeah. proper running techniques. So doing that, um, helping coach out some of my kids' soccer teams, uh, and also helping coach the couple of local junior runners as well. So, yeah, Super. I'm still pretty busy. Yeah. 
Very cool. You know, uh, in those camps, do you happen to cover off on peaking and tapering? Because that's what I'd love to kind of dive into today. I'm sure you have obviously immense experience around that. Um, you know, do you cover that in the camps? And also, like, tell me some reasons, like, why and when would an age grouper think about a, a taper? Should everybody taper? What's the difference between tapering and peaking? Yeah, it's a good question. We do cover it off. I think it's an important part of your your yearly schedule. Of course, you don't just train. Often when we train, we have races um, in our schedule. And, you know, how does our training look at different parts of the year leading up to those events? And I think one of the crucial um, times is the last week or two leading into those events. What are the things we should do? So um, tapering and peaking sort of go hand in hand. I sort of think with peaking, what we're talking about is you know, a lot of the year we're doing different things. Our focus might be strength. It might be building endurance, aerobic conditioning. It might be layering in some real race-specific work, such as speed work or or things like uh, race simulations, running off the bike, refining those real mm-hmm. specific skills and training very specifically for the event we've got coming up. Um, and I sort of refer to peaking as, you know, we're not, we're not simmering along now. We're sort of bringing it to a boil to be in our best shape physically and mentally for that race. Um, that's, for me, that's what a peak means. It means bringing everything to a crescendo, if you will. So in, from a mental and a physical standpoint, we're in our best place leading into that event. Hopefully, we've, we've structured the training around working on all those pillars of strength, endurance, technique, real race specificity or running off the bike. Um, racing intensity, maybe over speed work as well, and then and then freshening up. So we're we're really hitting our best form on race day. So to me, that's what a peak means, and and that goes hand in hand with a taper because obviously, when we're training in our regular routine or rhythm, we're we're overloading the body and recovering overload recovery. That's generally the cycle we work in to get fitness gains. But at some point, you know, there's no real fitness gains to be made in the last seven or 10 days before an event. So what we're, we're trying to do is just freshen up. So for me, I used to, um, I sort of think, uh, you know, how many times can we peak a year? I think for Ironman, generally speaking, you would only really race once or twice a year. So that means two peaks a year, um, factoring in your training and everything around that. For, for 70.3 or Olympic distance, I think you can peak a lot more. Um, of course, different loading within the training and, and different stimulus. It's more of a high-intensity stimulus, which itself requires recovery. But generally speaking, you don't have the volume of work you would do for an Ironman and particularly the run volume. And for me, it's the run, the running and the run volume that really tears the body down. Because um, it's of the three disciplines in triathlon, it's the, it's the weight-bearing discipline. The other two, swimming and cycling, are non-weight bearing. So I generally think less wear and tear on the body, less muscle damage. Um, so it's really the run volume you need to be mindful of, particularly with Ironman racing. And, um, you know, I would I would race many 70.3 Olympic distance events within a season. So um, I think my peaking, the way my peaking, as I said, for an Ironman, I'd really structure the training and the tapering around two big efforts within a season. Usually Hawaii was always one of them. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, usually it was only one Ironman race for me a year until um, the rules changed and you then had to qualify or validate and then do Hawaii. So then it'd be two. With the shorter races, what I would do, 
I would do a training block around sort of building endurance and strength, more race specific work, and then three or four races. Um, that's how it would look, shorter distance races. So that particular peak, I would get three or four events out of, um, mm. and often within a period of about four to six weeks. And then I would go back into a, a period of replenishment or recovery um, and regeneration, aerobic conditioning again. I always liked to default to that because I think, you know, with aerobic conditioning in an endurance event, you know, how much is enough or how long is a piece of string? It's always a good place to start and um, and regenerate and, and build up again. So I would always get back into some lower intensity zone two work and then again bring in the strength um, back into the you know, the intensity race specific work and then into another peak. So that was sort of the cycle or the routine that I worked on. Um, and of course, you know, you have a sort of a macro plan and a micro plan. And the macro plan is more the, the 12 or 18 months. Often it often it's longer than 12 months if you're talking about Ironman when you need to qualify and then race in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, whether you're a pro or an age grouper, I think you're often looking at a longer period of time you, you want to distance right. or space those events out and you might have a a spring or early season Ironman and then a late season Ironman or you may have an Ironman that you qualify you know in fall of one season and then a spring or, or a summer Ironman the following year so your macro plans off obviously a lot longer and once that's set then you build the sort of the micro plan the week to week month to month plan and and within that, you, you you factor in your your peaking and tapering, and I guess yeah. To sum up, peaking is really just bringing your form up to a crescendo, so you're in your best physical and mental shape for your events in your plan. Tapering in and around that is, I think they sort of go hand in hand because you know you, you don't want to be fatigued going into your racing. You want to be fresh. You want to be sharp. That's the whole point. We don't. Right. We don't train to train, although training is fun. We often train to race. We're preparing for an event um, and we want to be in our best form. That's the whole point of training. So, you know, I, I had a few. First of all, I'll say with, with tapering, I don't think it's a, a one size fits all. I think every athlete's different, even whether you're a pro or an age grouper. Um, you've got to understand your body and the things that you respond well to. Um, so it's not all one size fits all. Uh, but there are some general rules that I think govern our thinking around that. That's our starting point. Um, and, and, the, and the main one for me was always, you know, your tapering is more about the mindset should be more replenishment. It's, it's replenishing rather than depleting. Um, you know, I always think that there's no real fitness or strength gains to be made in the last seven to 10 days. So what you're looking at more is um, freshening up, sharpening up, activation, staying strong. Um, and I guess um, to your point of you know what's relevant to an age group or, or a pro, again, it, it comes down to you know what what's your usual training look like. Um, if if you're training, say thirty to forty hours a week, like a lot of Ironman professionals are, your taper is going to look a lot different to um, you know, someone who's say training 15 or 10 to 15 hours a week. So, and and I can relate to that because later in in my career, as I got older, my training loads and volumes, intensities, everything decreased. So my my actual average or normal training week would be, would be somewhere from 
around, it would average around 15 hours a week, so 15 to 20 hours a week. So my taper, my taper week would look, um, often would just look like a normal training week um, at that point in my career. I wasn't changing too much because my starting point going into that taper was a lot different to how it used to look. Mm. So, um, you know, I think I've made some notes here. I, I, th- I think if, if the athlete's listening, for my, my general rule, yeah, so, so the goal of tapering was to, to freshen up physically and mentally. It, it's to prime your cardiovascular system for the, for the race ahead. Um, it's to sharpen up so you want to, you want to, movements want to be fast and fluent and you want to feel strong. So, and, and the factors that govern your taper are going to be the things I just mentioned. What's your starting point going into that taper? Um, it would seem like you're, you mentioned residual fatigue. A lot would, if you're doing 40 hours a week, but you're mm. a pro, you might actually have more, resi- I don't know, but the more residual fatigue you have, are you then going to lengthen maybe the taper? Yeah. Yeah. So, so that, that was my point. So my, my general rule again was f- personally for an Ironman, my taper was two weeks, but for 70.3 or Olympic distance, my taper was seven days. Um, so oh. I'd have a, a seven day taper for the shorter events. Two weeks for me was, a, was a nice sweet spot for Ironman. And yeah. And I, again, I just think, as I said, we, we, you speak to most athletes, there's some governing thoughts around what a good taper looks like, but in the end, every athlete arrives on a really effective taper for themselves through a little bit of trial and error. Um, yeah. And, 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 and you try something and go into event and that's where you hear people talk about having in your schedule sort of a level events and B level events and, and your A level events would be your world championships and your qualification events and maybe some, some local racing um, where there's not as much skin in the game. That's where you can experiment a little bit and fine tune things to really dial in something that works for you Um some common mistakes that I made and that I see other athletes making, I think, in the taper. The most common one that I made, I think, is just too much intensity in your in your taper. Um, and that and you know, I, I think that that's that's more uh, terminal than too much volume. I think too much volume in your taper you can get through, provided it's in zone two or a lower intensity. Too much intensity, I just I think fatigues you. It fatigues your muscles, your, neuro, your, your neuromuscular system, depletes your glycogen stores, all of those things, um, which has more of a performance impact than too much intensity. So my rule of thumb was in my taper, I would always, I would always bring the volume back about 30 to 40%. And with my intensity, I would always cap my intensity in my taper at my target race intensity level or effort level. So I would not do any VO2 max or high intensity efforts in my taper. Nothing even close to a max effort. If, like I said, if I was if I was tapering for a seventy point three in that last week, any intensity I did in that week was right on my seventy point three um, race intensity. Or if it was an Olympic mm-hmm. distance, right on my Olympic distance race intensity. And similarly, if it was an Ironman taper in that two week taper, it was right on my Ironman. So my rule of thumb was cap your intensity right at your targeted race intensity level and and just shorter duration um, intervals with with longer rest longer mm. lo- longer rest intervals in, in in those sessions you know I think again it's more 
you're not trying to get fitness gains at that point. You're just trying to prime your cardiovascular system for the big effort ahead. And for me, when, particularly when I was doing my Ironman races and I'd come from a 30 or 40 hour a week session, I mean, yeah, 30 or 40 hour a week training load, I couldn't go to nothing. I couldn't just reduce to five or 10. My body was used to moving. Yeah. And it's similar to, I think it's similar to what you see in the Tour de France when, you know, the athletes have a rest day. They don't just lay around and do nothing. They actually go for yeah. an easy ride. Their body's used to moving. You, you want to flush the body. You may even do some some pickups or some drills or something on that rest day. You know, you often hear the Tour de France cyclists still do some sort of, not, not real max efforts, but just get the body moving. And I think when the body's used to that, you, you can't change too much. So, yeah, that was almost my feeling when I'd come from a 30-hour-a-week training load. I didn't want to go to nothing. Um but again, a lot you of it would was drop it thirty percent, thirty percent or so. You mentioned, yeah, thirty to forty percent in terms of the overall volume, and again, the the intensity was capped. So my VO two yeah. max efforts and those real top end max efforts, they were they were done and dusted when, once I hit my taper. The, the intensity was really capped at that targeted race intensity that you wanted to hit on race day, and and also things like even my strength and conditioning in my taper. I mean, for those who know me know I, I love I love a good core strength and stability routine. That was part of my yearly routine, and I would I would continue that into my taper. Um, but again, I wasn't. I would probably just reduce the my, my normal routine for a course. To, I'd do three three or four sessions a week of about forty five minutes during my taper. I might knock that down to two to three sessions a week of twenty minutes. And again, what I'm trying to do is just keep the muscles activated and send the, send the, you know, send the signals from my, my mind to my, to my body that those muscles still need to work. And I'm just trying, I'm, I'm not trying to fatigue. I'm just trying to turn them on, activate, activate all the muscles around my pelvis and then turn them off. And so with my core stability routine, yeah, I would drop that by 30%. Um, and the actual lifting in the gym, same, same again, I would still do a lifting I was I was big into you know lifting weights later in my career as I got older and I would still hit the gym once in race week but it would be early in the week Monday or Tuesday and same again I would thirty or forty percent was my rule of thumb I I would drop the weight by thirty or forty percent and I'd drop the sets and reps by thirty or forty percent as well so it was really just about turning the muscles on getting them to fire and then turning them off um, mm. and really good movement patterns really great technique in the gym. Um, so just, you know, you're using the muscle muscles functionally really well, turning them on, then turning them off. So just keep everything, you know, as I like to say, you're just priming the system without trying to fatigue it, get it ready for a big effort, but, um, still freshening up. So, and the same with my diet, you know, athletes often ask me about how does the diet look going into the taper? And, mm. you know, I don't like to use the word diet. I, I just have eating habits or eating patterns and, Nothing really changed. Like, hopefully, the overriding theme I'm getting through here is I don't change a lot of the method, but just just tweaking the volumes and the intensities of all of these things. Um, and that was the same, you know, that was the same with my strength and conditioning, and it was the same with my nutrition in race week. I I would listen to my body when I was hungry. I would eat. I would fuel with with good fuels. Um, I was never one to count calories or get on the scale. Obviously, when you're expending less calories, um, your body probably requires less. Um, 
but again, I, I didn't make a conscious effort to minimize any of that in race week. I just did it to feel I would eat normally. Sometimes my appetite would, would be a little lower than normal, but often nothing would change. I would just eat. You know, when you train a certain way for three or four or six months, the last week or two, me- metabolism doesn't really change. Your body still operates the same way. So I would, yeah, my, my, my eating habits wouldn't really change. I would still take protein shakes as well. and But I was governed, again, a lot by just the signals my body was giving me. If I was hungry, I'd eat more. Um, yeah, but I didn't ever make a conscious decision to limit anything. It's not like, oh, I'm expending less calories this, this couple of weeks. I need to minimize my intake. Often my body would just regulate that on its own. And um, yeah, so I just tried to keep things really similar. And same with, again, a, a big part of your taper is also your recovery protocols. I would I would do all the same things in taper weeks that I would do in normal weeks. I was used to ice baths, so I would implement them in my taper week. I was used to compression garments and also um, Normatec boots, so I'd do a lot of that in race week. I The biggest part of my um, recovery routine was always sleeping and massage. So I would try and sleep a lot in, mm. in, in my taper weeks, particularly earlier in the week. I think a good tip is if you're traveling to a race, try and get some sleep in the bank early in the week because you may have to deal with some time changes later in the week, maybe a bit of restlessness, nervousness later in the week to get that sleep in the bank early. And as for um, body work, if, if you're used to getting massage, I wouldn't go out and get a massage the day before the race if you don't normally get one. But if you're used to getting body work, again, I used to get two massages in race week, often went to the same uh, massage therapist. They knew my body well. They knew what I needed if it was a deeper um, session or just more of a flush. And I think good advice too for any athlete listening is, you know, whether you're an age group or a pro, all really successful athletes. And by successful, I mean athletes who always get the outcomes who are they, well, not always, but athletes who generally get the outcomes that they're after, whatever they might be, finishing a race, personal bests, qualification for events. Athletes who generally check off those boxes are self-aware. They get to understand themselves as an athlete and, and I think that's important, yeah. So if you go to a massage therapist, you tell them what you need. Um, you know, I'm just looking for a light flush this week. I tend, I, you know, communicate to them what the troublesome areas are, lower back, glutes, things like that. And, um, yes, every athlete needs to, to understand their own bodies and, and what they need and, and then be able to communicate that. So I think that's an important part of your taper as well, like just not only the training that you do, the aerobic training, the intensity, um, the strength and conditioning, but also what you do with your diet going into the taper and what your recovery looks like going into the taper as well. I think they're all things, these things all operate together. So um, they're all the things that I tried to factor in. Yeah, I think experience plays such a big part. You mentioned, you know, doing it once is one thing, but then learning from that. And the big thing I see, tell me if, if you see it as well, but it's just overdoing things even race week in kona running at high noon you know way too hard you know the final seven days it like you have to like work with athlete the mental side of building confidence in letting go it's it's so true and i think a great coach can do that not not only does a great coach coach you up and get you fit (laughs) 
but a part of that hopefully is a confidence um, that you have. And again, and none of us are immune to that because I, I used to sit there and race week in Karen as well and see people doing sort of high intensity stride outs down a Leahy drive in, in race week, um, you know, at midday and think maybe I should be doing that. And again, it came back to that overriding or governing thought I always had before I did any session in my taper is, you know, does this fit in with the mindset of replenishment rather than depletion? Like what, what is the goal of this session? And, and that's a question you should ask yourself before every session, whether it's in your taper or not. What, what am I trying to achieve in this session? You know, there's KPIs that I want to hit and things that I'm looking to achieve in this session and, and what are they? And, you know, heat acclimation is a very important part of racing in climates like Kona, but hopefully a lot of that is done before race week because, as you know, heat acclimation often um, involves depleting your body, getting dehydrated, working out in climates similar to what you're going to be racing in so your body is subjected to that loading and then makes the adaptations accordingly. Mm-hmm. They're not the kind of loads that you want to be applying two or three or four days out from a race. So, And you can maintain yeah, always, them once, once achieved, yeah. you can maintain that. Yeah. So I think part of it is an understanding of what my body has gone through to get in this shape. And then part of it is a confidence that, you know, the haze in the barn now, I just, I'm putting the polish on a lot of things and there are no real fitness gains, strength gains or adaptations that you get in those last days that, that come without a cost. Um, and it's all a risk reward. So yeah, I always used to come back to the question, is this replenishing or depleting? Um, and, and sometimes when you deplete, it, the, the outcome is, you know, or, or what you're after, it's worth the risk. But I just think with tapering, you always err on the side of caution. Physically and mentally, you're, you're just trying to prime the system for a big effort, but not deplete it. And, and feel good mentally. You, you touched on a great point there because so many athletes, I think, are in a good physical place to race, but then undo all that good work in the last seven to 10 days. Yeah. Um, because we lack confidence. And we, we've all been there. Um, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that I'm immune to those sorts of mistakes. We've all made them. Um, but hopefully you only make them once. And <laughs> you've just got to have confidence that, that the work is done and, you're ready, but I think by definition, a lot of athletes are type A personality and, and we're, we're much better at doing things than sitting around and watching or waiting. Um, yeah. But again, that's just the discipline that comes. And you make a good point. I mean, you see that in Kona, just people really doing things and you think, that's how is that contributing to your performance on Saturday? It's, it's really not. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, let not just Saturday. We now have what? The women this year, <laughs> Thursday and th- Saturday, Thursday and Saturday. So if we transition into Kona preview, you know, we, you know, that, this is the first time ever that men and mm. women will be on separate days. Uh, are you looking forward to that? Um, how's that going to affect the women's race? It's made it's, it's interesting. I think there's pros and cons like anything in life, isn't there? Um, I know a lot of my friends, female professionals have said that often their race gets impacted greatly by men, the top age group men and um, getting mixed up in amongst the women. So, yeah, I mean, 
from that aspect, the, the, the fact that the women get their own stage in their own race, I think is a great thing. Um, should the women be on Saturday though? Because that's, that's the weekend when you'd imagine most of the media coverage. Um, I just hope both men's and women's races get equal media coverage. That, that's my hope. I've heard, yeah. I've heard some of the things I've read about how that race week might look this year is that most media coverage and media outlets, there's more coverage on the weekend. So I, I don't know how that'll play out. I'm sure Ironman will try and do whatever they can to make sure there's equal media. I guess from the logistics standpoint, how I would imagine that the crowd and the the spectators there will have a lot more energy on the Thursday than the Saturday. Um <laughs> Because it's a 17 hour day for them as well. So I don't know. There's pros and cons, but I do like it from the perspective of the girls get their own race. Yeah. Um, and that's always what you hear in the post mortem after the event that um, you often hear about how so- sometimes a female race is impacted. So, but yeah, again, just the logistics of how do the volunteers back up two days later? Oh, I mean, they're yeah. two very long days. It's going to be crazy. Right. It, it's, it's interesting. I mean, yeah. To be honest, I, I like the idea of one day in terms of everybody gets to race, the volunteers are there for 17 or more because the race itself goes for 17 hours. The the, the, spec, uh, the volunteers are often on site for over 20 hours. So um, as with the race logistics crew, so it'll be interesting. But to be honest, mate, I'm just excited to get back there after three years yeah. and feel the Hawaiian sun, um, <laughs> drink, a few, drink a few little cocktails with umbrellas in them. And toast the athletes. Uh, Absolutely. It should be exciting. Hopefully I can toast along with you. So, so, so content Daniela repeat, she won in uh, St. George. She can check. Can she do it twice in a year? Um, did she just did the Collins cup, correct? She did. And she, she looked amazing. So look, I actually thought in May, she didn't look so good coming in, and I tipped her for the podium. I'd actually tipped Lucy Charles. I thought Lucy Charles yeah. would be unbackable um, going into to um, the race in May in Utah. But of course, as we see with Ironman racing, it's not only about race day; it's about just getting to the start line healthy. So, yeah. obviously, Lucy pulled out, and then I, I thought Laura Phillip would be the big favourite based on her performances in the last twelve months. I mean, she. I think her last three Ironman races have been 8.19, 8.31 and 8.34, all like world's leading times <laughs> and historic times, you know, some of the best times in history. So, But there again, she got COVID in race week, so she didn't even race in Utah in May. So Danny looked amazing and she looked, she looked amazing again last week in Slovakia. So you'd be, you'd be very brave to back against her. It's all she's been focusing on this year is those two world championships. Um, Lucy Charles also made a comeback race in Slovakia last week and looked really good. Who knows how much training she's missed though. My understanding was she had a very serious stress reaction injury in her femur. So I'm guessing she's missed four or five months of running, but yeah, she had one of the quickest run splits of the weekend, even though, the, the ITU World Long Course Race on the Sunday ran a different course to what the Collins Cup um, did the day before. So it was a slightly different course. Same bike course, and I think Lucy's time was on par or very similar to Danny's time. So we know Lucy's going to be off the front in the swim. Um, 
and, and Laura Phillip looked good last weekend as well. So Danny's not going to have it all her own way, but for, for mine to answer your question, I think she's the favourite. She deserves to be the favourite. Um, so the, in my, to my way of thinking, the roles are reversed. I had, I had Lucy and Laura as the big favourites going into Utah. Danny prevailed. She came through and raced incredibly well, won by 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. A few months on, I think Danny's the big favourite. She's got all the momentum and will have all the confidence. So, But let's not write off Lucy and Laura. Um, you know, still, for Lucy, it's still seven weeks, six, seven weeks away. So she can she can still build her, her run fitness nicely. Um, so, yeah, it should be exciting. The women's race is going to be really good. I think we're going we're gonna to see the big showdown that we wanted to see in May. Yeah. We'll talk about showdowns. Um, in St. George, the men, <laughs> not on the start line, Gustav, Aiden, uh, Jan Ferdano, again, won't be in Kona. Um, Patrick Langa, Brownlee, Joe Skipper. Ah. There are a lot of folks that didn't make the start line in St. George, and if they – all but Jan, who's really injured, um, you know, it could be really, really stacked. And we might see a first second for Norway, you think? Yeah, I think, look, I, I love Jan. I think he's one of the best, if not the best we've ever seen. I I didn't think he was going to win in Utah, though. I picked Christian. I Actually, I picked Gustav. Gustav was my pick for Utah. Because I thought on the that that course, that course profile, slightly different to the course profile in Kona. Both are, are hilly. Uh, Utah are a lot more climbing though, and I think that suits Gustav. So I'd picked Gustav to win in Utah, and 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 Christian I thought would get second. As you mentioned, there was race week in Utah was carnage. Gustav pulled out two days before. Alistair two days before. Joe Skipper got COVID a week before. Patrick Langer he broken his collarbone and his scapula a month out. He, I think he would have raced amazingly well on that course in Utah with all that climbing, being a smaller athlete. Um, and, of course, Jan pulled out in Utah as well with his Achilles. Fast forward a few months, I think we get everyone in the mix except Jan. And this time I'm, I'm, I'm going to switch Norwegians. I'm going for Christian, I think Christian on this course. He raced well in Cozumel last year, and I, everyone tells me it was a faster day down there, not as much heat, not as much wind. It's still hot and humid, and, and mm-hmm. I, very similar to very similar climate to Kona, to Kona. And so he he handled the the humidity very well in Cozumel. I think he'll just. Yeah, I just think he's the big favorite. I, I think yeah. he's so back to back championships. I think so. Same year. I'm, I'm tip. I'm tipping him. I'm tipping him, and I think Gustav will get second. And I don't think it'll be much between them. Um, and and I, I, to be honest, I do I do flip flop because I just I think over the Ironman distance, I, I've got to, I don't know. I I kind of feel Gustav might be a better runner, but on that course profile, Christian's strength, his strength on the bike. Yeah, I'm, I think <laughs> Christian's the guy. I think he's the man to beat. Gustav. Gustav will be second, um, and I had Jan for third in Kona as well. Although I must say there there is a scenario that had Jan been in the race in Utah as well with Alistair. Mm-hmm. I mean, what we saw in Utah was an elite little front group get away on in the men's race, which Christian wasn't in that group. He had to run up to take the win. Mm-hmm. I think there's a possible scenario in Kona 
similar to what we saw in Utah with a group of five or eight men, an elite group in the swim, which if Yarn was in the race, he would definitely be in. And, you know, I think Alistair Brownlee will definitely be in that group. And that's extra horsepower on the bike as well. And yeah. we, as we saw in Utah, Christian couldn't get across on the bike. Um, and we may see the same thing in, in Kona. Um, not as hard a bike, still 2,000 vertical metres of climbing though in Kona, so not an easy bike. And he will have his running mate, Gustav, with him, so they'll be together on the bike. But I just think if, if Alistair's in this race in October, he swims so well. Josh Joshy Armberger as well from Australia, who's a great swimmer and biker. Mm-hmm. You put a couple of guys like that into the mix, to Braden Curry, Daniel Backergaard, um, Kyle Smith. Lay low Sanders. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think we're in for a real treat. It's a stacked field. It's a stacked yeah. field. And I mean, we can sit here for half an hour and go back and back and forth on what we think might happen and what might play out on, on race days is nothing what we thought. But that's the, um, for me, that's what's really interesting about this race is there's a lot of legitimate contenders. Yep. Yep. Going to be, going to be awesome. Back in Kona. One last question for you. Should worlds remain in Kona every year? Or travel around. <laughs> Sorry. Again, yeah, it's, it's a good question. Like a lot, of, a lot of questions. There's pros and cons to both. I mean, I like when major races rotate because I think it, it, it it's a chance to to showcase and grow the sport all over the world. Um, that being said, though, some events are still marquee events if we look to other sports like the Masters in golf or Wimbledon in tennis, and, and they don't rotate. Um, it's a good question. I like Kona being in Kona because, I mean, for me, and this is just a personal thing, I it's the race that I saw 10 years before I ever did a triathlon. It's the race yeah. that got me into the sport. It's the race that had all the mystery and mystique and prestige for me um, and status. And triathlon has grown into a lot of great things now. We're, we have, we're an Olympic sport, um, all these different formats and styles of racing, which I love. It's all great for the sport. But historically, yeah, a, a lot of our sport was built on the back of Kona and that race, not only because of the distances, but also because of the location and, and how the race started, the story of the race, you know, all the, the, sport. the marine. Yeah, and, and, and for me, that that's what started our sport, just those Marines sitting around talking about who are the better endurance athletes, swimmers, bikers, or runners, and then coming up with this crazy idea to put it all together. And so I like it staying in Kona. If if the people of Kona love it and it's still the race is still embraced by the athletes, yeah, um, let's rotate the 70.3 worlds. Let's rotate the world championships for other distances. And, of course, the Olympics always rotate. Um, different venues every four years. So I kind of like Hawaii staying where it is. Cool. Well, that's the next place I'll see you. So uh, we'll give a toast to Kona when I, when yeah. we uh, get together over there. Appreciate it. Awesome insight. Um, all your great experience. Thanks for sh- sharing the experiences uh, throughout your career. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. That was, that was, that was awesome. Thanks so much, Crowy. My pleasure, Dirk. Great to to connect after all the year, after all these years, and great that um, Training Peaks and Sensego are working together again. I'm excited yeah. about what what we can do in the next couple of years. So thanks for the invitation. Yeah, lots to come of opportunity. On and have a chat. 
Yeah. Yeah. Lots of opportunity for sure. It's all growing. So awesome. Thanks, Croy. Take care.